Okay, well, last night I began with a question. I'm going to begin with a question again this evening. Um, and it's probably a species of the same question. I started off last night, if you remember rightly, by saying, how do you want to live? And then pose some um, alternatives, perhaps, one could say, around that question. Um, the question tonight is, as I say, related, and it's how do you want to be in this world? because in a way it is the same question, but posed from a slightly different angle. Whenever you learn a new language, which some of you might have done in the past, whenever you learn a new language, you usually learn two verbs, to have and to be, uh, as the first verbs you ever learn of a new language. And unfortunately, of course, in the Western world, a lot of our sense of being gets conflated with having. And we are what we have. Um, the other one that gets conflated with actually is we are what we do. That's the big one too. We are our professions, we are our jobs, we are our you know, bulging diaries, whatever it is. Um, that's what we are. You know, and there's a badge of honour that I have a bulging diary that I can't fit you in at all. You know? <laughs> so there's something peculiar going on here that I really want to kind of flag up in the sense of how we've lost this, this sense of being, of being in the moment, being where we are, being with what we're doing, rather than these grasping after our sense of identity through often what we own and what we possess. And that ownership and possession actually can be all kinds of things. It can be also not just material possessions, but it can be the knowledge that we have, the professions that we have. Any ways of creating ownership and identity through ownership for ourselves. And again, we must never underestimate this because in a sense, I often think of Western human beings often in search of an identity. We're kind of working our way through lives, searching for our identities. Um, often searching, actually, for a meaning to our lives. As the great writer on religion and mythology once wrote, Joseph Campbell, and again, somewhat of a paraphrase, but he said something like, everybody's concerned about looking for the meaning of life rather than living it. <laughs> Yeah. So we're focusing on something called meaning. A lot of religious traditions focus on that meaning as being elsewhere. And hopefully I disabused you of the idea last night that even nirvana or nibbana is an elsewhere um, in the early Buddhist tradition, as it was in some of the later traditions as well. The nibbana was here and now. This is what the nibbana-ing was. It was a way of being in this world. Sometimes we can go through the whole of our lives in the struggle and search for identity, for meaning, um, confusing it with a sense of you know, having and possession, particularly in the Western world, I think, because that's often the way that we're sold. We're often sold the idea that we are something through what we have, through you know, we've made it if we have X and Y and Z and so on and so forth. The consumers, capitalist industries feed off that. Um, you know, we're taught to desire from a very young age um, and you know, to keep on desiring. 
And this leads me actually into the second of the ennobling truths, because this was the truth of the fact that there was a cause to a lot of our misery and a lot of our suffering, and that cause was desire, that desire or craving, as it's often translated. I think I gave you the word last night, but the word is tanha, which actually means an unquenchable thirst. A thirst by its very nature that isn't susceptible to being quenched. You know, so this desire is constantly looking for something new. Both sexual desire, the desire for gratification, sensual desire, it's always looking for the new. It's always looking for something else. You can think of the way, for example, our culture in particular plays off this. There's greater and greater stimulation required, more and more new, for example, we take the cinema, more and more new special effects, greater and greater gore <laughs> in a lot of the, you know, the cinema that's around. Um, so there's this overstimulation, this tendency to overstimulate ourselves and not to actually be here right at this very moment, but be distracted, looking outside of ourselves, um, encouraged to look for our sense of being out there, not in here. Now the Buddha's focus, in a sense, is to turn us to look for our satisfaction, our peace, our happiness, whichever word suits you here, by looking inward, not looking for outward gratification for it. Um, in a sense, this comes into another form of the dukkha that I was talking about. I didn't really get through it last night, but I said the dukkha of dukkha, the, the dukkha, the viparanama dukkha, the dukkha of change, and then there's the sankhara dukkha, the dukkha of conditions. That everything has a condition or a cause. Everything that we encounter is conditioned and caused. And actually, this is good news for us, because if our dukkha is caused, if we change the cause then, or the condition which gives rise to it, then this will change. Then dukkha will perhaps drop away. This suffering, this misery, this unpleasantness, this unhappiness, you know, so on and so forth, might start to drop away, might start to ease if we, if we start to deal with its causation, if we start to look at it. And to be perfectly honest here, this means looking at the totality of your life. <laughs> no simple task. Just looking at the totality of your life, because it's in the totality of your life that you see this craving, this dukkha, um, emerging again and again and again by looking. Um, and a lot of it is not, in scare quotes, our fault. It's what we're sold. It's what our culture conditions us into. It doesn't um, lie happily with us to live simply, to live in the moment to live without this overstimulation and this search for stimulation that we're often engaged in. One phrase I've often used, and I've often used it in this room actually, is that we are a culture that's amusing itself to death, basically, because that is what we're doing. We're trying to distract ourselves away from the existential facets of our lives, the ones which I spoke about last night, which unfortunately, fortunately, I'm not quite sure, are unavoidable. I probably think fortunately they're unavoidable, not unfortunately. We cannot avoid aspects of life. We cannot avoid that death, old age, 
and sickness which will come to us at some point in time. Sometimes, of course, these, when we get sick, they're a wake-up call. Sometimes, unfortunately, and this really is unfortunately, it might take the wake-up call of a terminal illness or something to realize that our search has been misplaced, that the way we've wandered through life, uh, the way we've looked for meaning in our lives, the way that we've searched for happiness in our lives has often been misplaced. I'm going to read you just two passages. And again, I've read this in this room a couple of times before. And two passages from a little book that came out about three years ago by somebody called Ulla Karin Lindqvist, who was a Swedish television journalist um, at the top of her profession, basically. And in 2002, she was diagnosed with uh, an extremely virulent form of motor neuron disease called ALS. And she kept a record right up until her death, and this was published in 2004, uh, and it's called Rowing Without Oars, uh, the little book. And it really is about her experiences, and her experiences are a sense of meaning within the last days of her life. And I'll just read you two very short passages, just to give you an impression, because I think it really does show us how sometimes it takes us to wake us up. Now, if we can do that before we get to this point, before we get to the point of, you know, dying or getting close to death or being diagnosed with something like a terminal illness, then all to the good. She says here, I'm going to die of ALS if nothing unpredictable happens. There are two roads that I can take. One is to lie down, be bitter, and wait. The other is to make something worthwhile of this misfortune. See it in a positive light, however banal that might sound. My road is the second. I have to live in the immediate present. There is no bright future. For me, there is only the bright present. Children live like that. Only for the present. Nothing coming afterwards. Therefore I laugh like a child, uncontrollably. In the whole of my adult life I have thought it will be all right in the end. I have to do this first, then it will be all right. But this way of thinking is no longer possible for me. The strange thing is that nowadays, when I am terminally ill, I feel moments of great joy and great happiness, such as I have hardly ever felt before. Happiness has never been a constant for me, but it's becoming one now. That's why I laugh. And if it has anything to do with bulbar paralysis, then it's a blessing that comes with ALS. <laughs> and there's one other little instance I want to just read to you, which is uh, the wisdom of a child, here, which is one of her sons who comes to see her. She's, he's aware that um, she's very ill. And this is her son coming into her bedroom, and she's obviously lying in the sick bed. Gustav comes and stands by my desk, because she has a writing desk across her bed. Um, Do you write all the time, Mummy? It takes such a long time, I reply. I only write with two fingers now. Mummy, I'm a miniature human being. What? You're big and I'm little. No, Gustav, you're big. You have your whole life in front of you. The future. Now it's me who's getting smaller. Mummy, every second is a life, he says gently. What did you say? Every second is a life. 
Where have you heard that? Nowhere. I just made it up. <laughs> and he carries on. You have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives left, Mummy. Because every second is a life, I echo. <laughs> now, that's what I mean by living in the present. <laughs> I think that's really uh, quite a powerful passage we're getting us to see, and it really is the wisdom of a child, you know, not knowing where it comes from, but just um, sort of coming out with it, saying every second is a life, and unfortunately a lot of the time what we do is we erase whole portions of our lives in the search for something out there. Um, Simply the ways often, I'm not saying you necessarily do, but sometimes people raise whole portions of their life because they're looking towards their holiday. <laughs> That's what I'm going to live when I get on holiday. I'm going to live when I do something else. I'm not living here. You know, um, the poet Rambeau calls it, life is always elsewhere. <laughs> you know, in other words, we're always searching for life somewhere out there, but it's not quite here. Now, this is a long way around of trying to get to the point I want to make, is that it's not about possessions, it's not about doing, doing, doing in our constant frenetic manner in the West. And as I say, this particular person, Willakaran uh, Linguist, had a top profession, but it was all stripped away in the end. It all comes down to what you're left with when you're in a terminal condition. And what do you have left in that moment? Is it the power to be in that moment, to enjoy it, or is it still hankering for something else? That idea, as I say, that life is elsewhere. Now that is what this path is about. It's about bringing us back into the moment. Not in some kind of vacuous moment, but the moment which is replete with everything. And it's all here in the sense of being that you have now. Yet we are so caught up with projections into the future and constant wallowing in the past. <laughs> um, so much so, I often joke about this and say, you know, is there anybody home? <laughs> because uh, so often people are out there in the future. I mean, the German philosopher Heidegger had a lovely time. He said, we're always being ahead of ourselves. You know, we're always projecting, we're always constantly thinking about what's going to happen next, rather than being here. The alternative to that, as I say, is actually going back and wallowing in the past and being saturated into that past, but with very, very little of being here in this moment. And this path is to bring us into this moment, not to suggest that we're not going to have to plan, we're not going to have to do things, you know, but our whole life doesn't have to be spent planning. Our whole life doesn't have to be spent raking over the past, looking at mistakes, seeing how it could have been better, holding resentments, doing all the sorts of things we often do with our past material. And in a way, you don't escape your past. Your past is here at this very moment. Um, as you sit on your cushions, uh, your past, and if you don't do anything about it, it will become your future as well, um, because that's what we, in a sense, work with and project outward into our putative futures. So the path that we're talking about, this meditative path, this path of cultivation, is bringing us back into a true sense of being in this world, not being this or being that, but being 
just in the moment and that moment being full and as being content in that moment to be in the washing up to be in all those mundane chores which again we wipe off you know, we wipe out in the search for oh, I'm looking to do something interesting I'm looking to do something else. All the distractions we put in place to try and cover over the difficulties often of the repetitiveness of the things that we have to do. I'm not talking about anything difficult here, just the the ordinary mundane things that we're engaged in day to day. Now one of the great difficulties obviously of arriving, particularly if you're new, you've come into a place like this, to somewhere like Gaia House, is the first thing you'll notice is you've been stripped away of all your distractions. Yeah, most of the distractions, in fact, you're encouraged, encouraged yeah, presume that the managers to not even to, to read and write most of the time. <laughs> you know, so all of those mechanisms by which we escape the present moment and the difficulty often that we perceive in living in that present moment are no longer offered to us in the place. So no wonder, particularly if you're new here, that you might find it difficult. But part of that is because of expectation. And part of it is because we don't relax into this sense of being, of being here. Of experiencing those little things, what I call the the moments of being, which are there in our ordinary life. And we don't see them, we don't hear them, we don't taste them, we don't touch them. Often we are hearing but deaf. We're often tasting but somehow we don't really get to the flavour of things. We walk through the world in a way in this kind of almost blind, deaf, reduction of our tactile sense, everything, because we're not really there in the moment. also, Virginia Woolf had this expression which I've just used, which is moments of being. And these are little moments, wonderful little moments. It wasn't anything big. These were wonderful things like, you know, on a hot day, I know we haven't had many this year, but uh, on a hot day, the, the, the touch of water on your skin, when you're suddenly brought into the power of that moment when you're really there and present for that experience. Um, the feel of the wind on your skin, the taste of some food. Often we're not present for these things because we're distracted into our future and we're distracted by this constant projection or we're there, as I say, in, in our pasts, immersed in that past and raking it over. Often, again, we're looking for the meaning in external things, looking for others. And here's the death knell of all relationships, make me happy. <laughs> it's got to be the one, hasn't it? You know, almost the accusatory finger pointed at somebody, make me happy. Yeah, sure as eggs are egg, it's going to fail <laughs> somehow. Um, in doing that, we don't come into relationship. We can't in that with the expectation that something or someone is going to make you happy. The Buddha's unique discovery in many ways, I say unique, it was unique to his culture and his time in particular, I think it resonates 
through to us in the present day because it is such a powerful statement is actually no thing and no one can make you happy only you can do that only you have the power to do that you know, conditions might be absolutely perfect materially and we see that often in western culture exponentially so you know, for instances of depression are going up in western culture the more that material culture grows the more it's growing, the more depression, because of the greater, often, dissatisfaction. You know, that the, the mythologies of our present world don't hold out the satisfaction, don't actually deliver, in the end, all of the promises. They don't actually give it to us. So we find you know, this culture of distraction, this culture of abuse, often, um, that people so easily drop into because life isn't giving them what they expect and material culture certainly isn't delivering most of what we've told it's going to deliver ever since we were small children. Yeah, and it's a very, very powerful thing that our culture keeps telling us we've got to keep on doing it. Yeah. Economics depends on it, the capitalist system depends on it and so on and so forth. So the Buddha's unique discovery in a way was actually to turn the question back on ourselves and really get us to look at what is going on in our own lives and how either how responsible we are, how responsible from moment to moment we are for our own happiness and unhappiness. And that's not to say that things don't happen. Yeah. Of course things happen. Tragedies happen in our lives. You know, the world is an uncertain place. Life is a very, very uncertain, unstable phenomenon. You know, as Tibetans are very fond of saying there's one thing that's certain, and that's death, one thing that's absolutely uncertain, when? <laughs> you know, none of us know. And in a way, I'm not joking about that. None of us know. So now becomes the time to do something about it, because it's now that you know. We can put all that planning, and this is the futility in the way of much of the planning, although I know we have to engage in it, you have to engage in it to get here, <laughs> for example. You, know, you have to book in advance, probably book your trains or organise your journeys and so on and so forth to arrive here. However, a lot of that planning is futile, all of that long-term planning that we do in the future, because that future might never arrive. And that's not being morbid, it's just being realistic, because things happen. Um, the world seems to me, I don't know if it's getting any more unstable, but it's certainly becoming more apparent that it's unstable. You know, um, even with things like you know, the changing weather patterns, none of us, you know, for example, might know now know whether we're going to have a dry house any longer. Um, that doesn't seem to be a certainty in the UK anymore. So we live in uncertain times. Um, not that I think the Buddha's times were any less uncertain. And it's just the uncertainties are perhaps slightly different to the ones that we live now. So if we're looking for these external phenomena to make us happy, well, they're compounded. And that is what we mean by Sankara Dukkha. They are compounded. They change. The causes and conditions change. And as soon as the causes and conditions change, whatever we believe to be stable changes. And it can change quite radically. The Buddha's final reported words 
These are finally reported words in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Some of you might know these. Um, was that everything that was conditioned was unstable, but strive on untiringly. <laughs> these are his finally reported words. Now, I find it take quite heart, great heart from that, you know. No matter if, even if we recognize this, if we fully wake up to the fact that all compounded phenomena, which is everything which is dependent on causes and conditions for its existence, if everything is evanescent or unstable in this way, then we still have to strive on. Uh, we still have to make our way through this world. Yeah. The world might be changing politically, um, in terms of its weather patterns and so on and so forth, but we still have to get on and do things. You know? And our suffering or our happiness depends on how we approach. How we approach what is going on. Now, coming back to the teaching, it means really, as I say, looking at the totality of our lives and seeing how, for example, we look for happiness in unstable places. How we perhaps place it in material objects. I had a very, very sad case quite a number of years ago. It was reported in the press. It was about a man who had had his car from brand new, absolutely brand new. And it, I think it becomes sort of, not vintage, you know, but one of these classic cars or something over the years they'd had it. And he'd polished it every Sunday, looked after it, it was in perfect condition, and somebody stole it. And then he killed himself. Yeah. And that is a terribly, terribly sad phenomenon. Yeah. To place all of your sense of being in something which, in a sense, is so fragile. Yeah. So, so fragile. None of the so-called things that human beings create or, or invent have any real permanence or stability to them. They have no greater permanence or stability to that of the natural world, because, in a sense, they are just manipulations of the natural world. So, therefore, if the natural world is unstable, therefore, our creations are unstable. And to put all of our sense of happiness or sense of being into any external thing, well, I wouldn't say it's going to result in what resulted in that particular case, but it's certainly going to result in a lot of suffering in many cases and a lot of unhappiness. Yet, that is often what we're told to do by our culture. And this is the reason why the Buddha says to take a stance against this is to swim upstream. You know, we're swimming against the tide, as he puts it, to swimming upstream against everything that's going on, because um, as more and more perhaps place their trust and their faith in the solutions of technology and the solutions of you know, materialism and solving our ills, then um, the more likely they are to suffer. However, if we do the opposite, and move into the real sense of understanding our sense of being in this world and what it really, really means to be, then we stand a much greater, and I say possibility, not actuality, because it requires effort. It may requires great effort in order to do that. We stand much greater possibility of discovering that peace, contentment, happiness, probably contentment and happiness in this world. 
that so far evades us in a lot of instances. Now, it's not to say that there aren't joys. I don't wish to sound a complete, you know, sort of killjoy here, but there are joys in our lives, there are pleasures in our lives, but there is this lack of contentment, there is this lack of stability in um, the way that our so-called happinesses unfold. In fact, our happinesses often very quickly turn into miseries. Um, because actually they're really pleasure. They're not just happiness. They're not happiness in the true sense of the word here. So it means looking at our desires, our cravings, our tendencies to want to follow, obviously, where the majority go. It's far easier to be part of the majority doing what the majority do than it is in a way to simplify our lives, to relax, to shed the unnecessary, to relax into being. Um, One of the things I think often characterizes much of our cultures, I say much, not totally, but much of our cultures, is this kind of tension that runs through it. It goes through into big cities and it's palpable this tension that runs through and how everything has got to be done extremely, extremely quickly. Um, I remember once, this is really a long time ago, back in the early 70s, when I was, I was escorting a Tibetan lama across London, um, whose her first visit it was to the UK. Um, and I, I'd lived in London for a little while, and as soon as I got to London, and I got to the top of the escalator. I did what Londoners do, <laughs> which is spied uh, an underground train at the bottom of the escalator and went careering down the escalator like this, while this Tibetan kind of walked, sorted <laughs> down the escalator <laughs> after me. And by the time we got to the bottom, because the train had gone, and I was standing there sort of driving, I was rather sort of uptight about it. And he looked at me and he said, uh, there's one thing I've really noticed here. He said, one train goes and another comes. <laughs> <laughs> and it really said it all, because so often that's exactly what's happening. We're, we're pushing ourselves and we're getting tense, um, we're getting stressed out. For what? Mostly. Yeah. Because simply we're doing what everyone else is doing. We often uh, look for our solutions also in the the solutions of science and technology and everything else, as if everything's going to be solved there. Um, One of the great statements I always remember from studying philosophy when I was at university was one by Wittgenstein. He said, when all the problems of science have been solved, it will leave the problems of life completely untouched. (laughs) Which I thought was a wonderful phrase. Um, because it still leaves us with those big existential problems that, as I've said, none of us can evade. So, coming back, which is um, kind of taking very slowly and kind of digressively through the Four Noble Truths, or the Four Ennobling Truths, because we talked about the truth of Dukkha last night and, you know, the way, how do you want to live? Do you want to live with that Dukkha? Are you happy with it? Because many times we can be. We can be clinging on to that dukkha. We can create a sense of identity. You can become a list of your symptoms. <laughs> you know, whatever they might be. I've got this identity. I know who I am. I am this symptom. <laughs> I'm joking about this, but we become our professions. 
and all the dukkha that goes with those as well. We create identities out and out of our miseries. I am this type of person who suffers in this particular way, and therefore, you know, I am as I am. And often people say, you know, that is the way I am. That's a wonderful statement, isn't it? It implies I can't possibly change. <laughs> because that is the way I am. Um, and we'll talk about this tomorrow, right? Um, in the sense of, who are you? Who exactly are you? Because the Buddha has some thoughts about that, too. So we start with Dukkha. We have to look at it in our own lives, because none of this um, is something to be taken as a belief system, as something which is a dogma or anything of that sort. Either you have Dukkha or you don't. It's as simple as that. Either you perceive it, somewhere written into the warp and woof of your life, or you don't. You know, dukkha is, in other words, the first of the noble truths is not, I believe in dukkha. <laughs> you know, others might have it, but I don't. You know, what's the point? If you don't feel you have it, there's nothing to be done. In fact, that is actually the condition, as I say, of that deva realm that I joked about last night. Those who feel they have nothing to do because they have everything. So there's no motivation to want to do anything. However, if you do think there is something there, then it needs to be examined. It needs to be examined in terms of our lives. It needs to be examined in terms of its causalities as well. The ways that we create Dukkha. And that was the Buddha's, in a sense, really important insight. That Sansara with its tone of Dukkha, now I'll just explain those words again for those of you not familiar, Samsara, this realm of circular behavior, going feelings of going round in circles, the propensity to do things and think things which seem to be very, very similar again and again and again without really learning anything from it a lot of the time. That is samsara. Uh, the Buddha referred to it as an endless ocean and you can keep afloat in it or sink in it as you wish. Uh, but it's an endless ocean um, that we can go around in. You know, just thinking similar things and doing similar things and ending up with similar problems and getting as its tone misery, unpleasantness, unhappiness, irritation, you know, again, that litany I could go into. Yeah. Again and again and again and again. That's what characterizes it. However, if we begin to identify causes, such as craving, an endless desire to satisfy something within ourselves. Often, it's often a feeling of emptiness within us. And I don't mean that in the technical sense that's often used in Buddhism that some of you might be familiar, familiar with, but more that sense of vacuousness within. Um, Jean-Paul Sartre, actually, the French philosopher, actually diagnosed it extremely well. He said you know, there was being and there was nothingness. You know, being here wasn't the sense of being that I'm meaning, but being was things which appeared not to change and had some sense of solidity and identity. And human beings, in a sense, were nothing, comparatively. And they got terrified by their own freedom. So they tried to turn themselves into things. You know, tried to turn themselves into being like tables and chairs. Because tables and chairs didn't change very much. <laughs> human beings do. 
I'm kind of simplifying this to put a message across, but it's often the way we try to fill up that sense of vacuousness by becoming a something. And that goes back even to the first condition that I talked about, because that something might be your profession, your symptoms, your addictions, your habits, no matter what it is. You have a sense of being something, even in your misery. And I really don't want to underestimate that, because it's very powerful, that hold of knowing who you are, even through your pain, in this way. However, if you're prepared to examine, then that examination might lead you into an investigation of some of the ways that we cling to our pain and miseries. In fact, how we cause ourselves pain endlessly. As I say, the Buddha didn't believe that dukkha just came about. The dukkha of dukkha comes about. In other words, there are such things as physical pain, as I indicated last night from that you know, brief kind of paraphrase I gave you from one of the Buddha's suttas. You, know, you step on a shard of stone, it will cause you immense pain. You know, it will cause you, in a sense, a, a sharp form of dukkha. But is it going to be dukkha, dukkha? I have a magnification of that ordinary pain, that sickness, that illness, that physical hurt, no matter whatever it is, that mental hurt, not just physical hurt, are we going to magnify it out of proportion to what it is? It's painful enough already. Do we need to do anything more with it? Then we have the dukkha of impermanence, the resistance to all of that change, those changes within our lives. The changes that we are powerless to affect much of the time. Then, obviously, that, in some sense, is very close also to the dukkha of compounded things, sankara dukkha. Things are compounded, they're formed, and if they're formed out of causes and conditions, and this is the Buddhist statement, everything is formed out of causes and conditions. There is nothing that isn't formed out of causes and conditions. There is no causeless entity in this world. And so if everything has a cause and is compounded in that way, then it is going to change. You are going to change, I am going to change, your partners are going to change, your loved ones are going to change. We're all going to change because we're all compounded phenomena. And all the things, even the material things you try to hang on to, you you polish, you look after, will change. The conditions which uphold them, sustain them, will change. And in a way, by trying to stabilize, make permanent, we cause ourselves pain. All the time, by trying to shore up that which is almost inevitable. So we're causing ourselves pain by our very attitude that we bring into the world, that the mind brings into the world. And we identify it with ourselves, too. You know, that sense of self that also wants to be permanent. It wants to be solid. It wants to be a something. It wants the world to be a something, an unchanging permanent phenomena. And it wants you and those around you, perhaps, to be unchanging in some sense. I'm not saying overall, but in some sense. Now, this is very sad, isn't it, sometimes? Because we get the phenomenon of people having 
lived together for rather long periods of time sometimes, either as close friends or as partners or whatever, and one day one of them says, you've changed. You know, really what it means is they haven't seen the change that's gone on. Because everybody is changing all the time. It's almost as if they freeze frame them in time until the mismatch between the photograph or the freeze framing and what is actually there present in front of them is so palpable they can't ignore it any longer. But there's this desperation to inhibit that change, to inhibit impermanence, both for ourselves and for others, and the Buddha diagnoses this as one of the main ways in which we suffer, by always attempting to create stability and permanence where there is only instability, where there is only that evanescence, that change which is inevitable. Now, sometimes it's easier, perhaps, to buy into, and I'm just going to say this is a final comment before I open it for questions. Sometimes it's far easier to buy into the idea that everything is impermanent, because it somehow externalizes it, doesn't it? You go, everything is impermanent. Well, it's probably that little voice inside your own head that says, not me. <sighs> you know, often says, you know, because everything's going to change, everything is, you know, it's all very intellectual, it gets all very, everything's going to change. I know there's such a thing as death. You know, <laughs> you know when it comes to that, you know, everything's going to die, of course everything's going to die. It's going to that little voice, not me. <laughs> I always think it's the height of arrogance in a way. It's really strange, isn't it? You, know, you can say this about the whole of the universe. Everything in the universe is changing except me. <laughs> Doesn't it sound odd when put in those ways? You know, everything else is changing, but not me. I'm not changing, and don't you dare change either, <laughs> if you're close to me. <laughs> that sounds very odd, and that's in a sense where I'm going to take it tomorrow night and, and, and pursue that oddity and, and see what's involved in that and how we try to create a self of, sense of identity when there isn't one. There isn't... You know, there isn't self as such in any permanent way, but that's not to negate the idea of character and persons and all of that idea of who and what you are, but without having to posit anything permanent about it whatsoever. So I'll finish there and uh, you know, basically say any questions or comments. You know. I'm going to get you to talk to me by the end of this retreat. <laughs> I know you said silence, but it doesn't mean anyways. I have a lot, lots of questions, but um, I don't have one particular one, and I don't have it so well framed in my mind. Um, but um, a lot of what you're saying um, in that talk was a critique, if you like, of Western society and Western values. Um, and I was just thinking about the different issues and, and dilemmas in 
adopting a, a broadly Buddhist orientation from a different culture mm. and from a different period in history and into the present and into our culture mm. and how I'm kind of I'm not sure where I'm going with this but mm-hmm. how um, that creates interesting issues for us who might want to practice those things in the contemporary world and the, in a particular culture um, in which it didn't develop historically. Um, and, um, and it's also linked to how, in a way, we have to come out of that culture mm-hmm. to a place like this, for example, and then go back in. Because after all, you're not suggesting to us that we all would take ourselves out of that culture. No. In order to create um, a, a different society which is based on different values. Um, mm. We must go back in and um, given that you know most people don't do these kinds of practices, you know, the ninety percent maybe, I don't know mm-hmm. the figures. Um, but doesn't that put us in in a, in a position of antagonism rather than one of equanimity? with the culture and time that we're in. Okay, yes, I think it's a really good question. It's a huge question, actually. <laughs> but it's a huge too, so it's... <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's a, it is an enormous question, because it's the dilemma every individual practitioner confronts in the Western world. And it's the dilemma about the place that Buddhism is going to find in Western culture. And I use that word guardedly, you know, the word Buddhism, because of what I said last night. I mean, I do use that word very guardedly. However, we're not unique. Because in many ways, um, Buddhism has gone to cultures which it didn't grow up in. Okay, a long time ago in many cases. Um, but it has gone into cultures where it wasn't a natural phenomenon or a natural outgrowth of those cultures. China is a very good instance. Um, China, you know, in the first translations of Buddhist text into Chinese, they translated it very much in Taoist terms, which was the culture that they obviously, okay, what was the dominant culture along with Confucianism uh, at that period. Um, all of the cultures it's gone into, it's been translated in a way which resonates with those cultures. So it's not identical to what was going on in India two and a half thousand years ago. And certainly when it comes to the West, it's not going to be identical to anything that was going on in India two and a half thousand years ago. As you rightly say, we live in a vastly, vastly different culture. And many of the problems sometimes I encounter, not in, in retreats not so much as this because they're not so kind of intellectual study oriented but certainly in trying to convey some Buddhist ideas from the text it's very difficult for people to appreciate them unless you have some understanding of the background into which they were originally um, they were originally born however that's kind of confronting the difficulties I think um, we're there to a degree we're engaging in the process um, hopefully this is part of the process, these kinds of retreats, in trying to place them in a Western context and in our Western ways of life, which is why I try not too much to refer to what goes on in traditional Asian cultures, because it really isn't relevant to us 
Um, and also, I don't want to over-romanticise it, because, you know, what goes on in the East can sometimes can be just as bad as what goes on in the West. It's just... And, and particularly with globalisation now, a lot of Western culture is becoming Eastern culture, too. So there isn't that vast difference culturally sometimes. Um, having said that, there are still a lot of differences there. Um, but this is, part, this is part of the dialogue. This is part of the transition. I do appreciate what you're saying about the difficulty of each individual practitioner moving out into the world. And you heard me saying, I've been trying to emphasize that since the start of the retreat, and I know we're only two days in, but these ideas only make sense in your daily life. They don't make sense in places like this. This is, could be your kind of greenhouse where you grow your rarefied hothouse flowers, and the moment you take them outside, they die. <laughs> you know, and I don't want them to become hothouse flowers. <laughs> You know, that's not the point. The point is to grow hardy perennials <laughs> to survive out there in the world. I mean, the Buddha uses agricultural metaphors, so why can't I? <laughs> um, but joking aside, it's, it's really creating something that can be taken outside into that ordinary world. And I do think the power of Buddhist thinking is that it can. It's transferable. Because when we start talking about dukkha, now the causes and conditions of dukkha some of them might not have changed, a lot of them culturally will certainly have changed. But that there is misery and that there is dukkha around is a universal phenomenon. As I say, it's not something you have to believe in. You either see it around and you see people suffering physically and mentally, particularly mentally in the way that they approach the things that happen to them. You know, watch people around you in a traffic jam. I mean, you see people really suffering. <laughs> I mean, honestly, don't you? I mean, you see people on a train, if the train breaks down, really suffering because they can't get to their place on time. They can't get to this, to, to this place. And Western people really suffer in the breakdown of you know, the kind of infrastructures and things like that because we expect things to happen. That is actually slightly different from the East. Sometimes in the East you don't expect things to happen. <laughs> and I'll tell you a funny story in a minute. But... <laughs> but um, the cause, the, the types of misery that are around might have changed to a degree, but a lot of them haven't. You know, there is either misery or there isn't. There is a cause to it. You know, the craving to expect something to happen. You know, expecting it to happen. You know, whilst everything is conditional and changes, you know. I was driving down here last Friday down into, into Devon last Friday. I was lucky to get through because everybody else behind me got stuck for 15 hours on the M5. You know, that's not the sort of thing you expect in England. But it's happening. Yeah. Almost expect the unexpected. Yeah. And then you'll live a lot happier. <laughs> a lot happier way of life. Yeah. So it's these kinds of things which help us, I think, to engage with our culture because they are ways of approaching the phenomena of our culture. And because it's primarily psychological, you don't have to take on all the cultural trappings. I really do try to make this clear. The cultural trappings are completely unnecessary. Buddhism is not its whole sense of cultural trappings. At some point in time, I perhaps envisage a genuine form of Western Buddhism, perhaps with some expressions of, I don't know, Buddhist devotionalism or whatever you want to call it, arising in a Western context. I, don't, I certainly don't think we're there now. However, 
I do think that we're engaging in that process in places like Gaia House and other retreat centers and the engagement particularly with philosophers and psychologists and the ways that the techniques in Buddhism can actually help people, whether you call it Buddhism or not, completely irrelevant. You know? It's what helps people. You know, the, the, the Buddha, uh, even in his own time, said he was teaching for the benefit of all. Yeah. and out of the love of all. Nothing else. He didn't want people to become Buddhists. <laughs> yeah. What he wanted was people to find a way of life where they no longer suffered. Yeah. That was what his chief aim was. Now, obviously the way Buddhism has been transmitted to the West so far, I mean, my early involvement with Buddhism was all through Tibetan Buddhism and Sri Lankan Buddhism. Very traditional cultures. You come back to the West and you think, well, it's not necessary to do a lot of that stuff here. In fact, it looks like play acting. <laughs> yeah. You dress up in funny robes. I mean, a friend of mine actually was a Tibetan monk who lived in the West for a while. He said he, every time he put on his robes, he was putting on his fancy dress. <laughs> yeah. He felt that it was that some kind of jarring in the Western situation that it actually was often um, alienating as opposed to helping us within our culture. So to be Buddhist isn't necessarily to be different externally. It's to be different internally. How we approach things. What our values are. And I think that will inevitably engage us in a critique of our culture. It's got to. Um, There's a lot of good things. I mean, I know I've mentioned a lot of bad things about our culture and values. Um, you sit for three and a half years in a Tibetan monastery, you suffer some good things about Western culture, I can tell you. <laughs> um, you suddenly realize that there's some very, very good values here in Western culture as well. But it's finding those and actually sifting out the diamonds from the chaff. Yeah. Rather than taking the whole lot or critiquing the whole lot in a rather adolescent way. You know, it's looking at it very closely and looking at our involvement in it. That's the main thing. Looking at our, how we personally approach it. Where are we looking for our happiness? Why are we still getting upset if I know everything's impermanent when my pen gets lost? Or my car breaks down? Or things like that. I say that very personally because it happened to me quite recently. <laughs> Why do we get upset when those things happen if I know things are impermanent? It's, it's those things, it's those approaches. So I, I'm kind of going all over the place here, but I'm kind of trying to make a stab at your very, very large question. It is a very, very large question. And here's a funny story. I must tell you this, because this is a, one that happened to me when I was in India many years ago. Some, some people in this room, I know, have heard me say this before, but I was living in India. This is a, expect the unexpected, rather than expect something to happen. Um, I was in a Buddhist centre in Delhi. I was just staying over for a period in Delhi before going back up to the mountains. And um, somebody flew in from Switzerland, from Zurich. Now, I don't know if any of you have been to Delhi. I know some of you have. You've been to Delhi, um, particularly in this was in the 90s, early 90s. It was still a pretty chaotic city, Delhi. You come into Delhi from Zurich. I mean, Zurich is clockwork country. <laughs> um, and despite the fact he was English, he'd taken on a lot of these values of living in Switzerland, like things worked on time. Well, that one certainly wasn't true <laughs> when you were in Delhi, but he arrived there, it's expecting everyone to work on time. And, and I'm, not, I'm not joking, in three days he was having a nervous breakdown um, in the frustration at things not going the way he expected them to. 
um, because he's been used to it. It was his first trip to India. He never really knew what to expect, I think, when he arrived there. And so we at Centre decided to get him a ticket on the overnight sleeper up to Patankot, which is where you go up to Dharamsala. So you get the bus up to Dharamsala, which is where the Dalai Lama is. We said, you know, George, if you go up there, things will be fine because it's nice and to get some lovely people. <laughs> things like this. And so we took George down to Delhi Railway Station and... Um, um, found his sleeping berth, because it's quite a complex procedure trying to find a sleeping berth on an Indian train, and it happened to be the last carriage that was there, and we got him on, and we all stood on the platform waving him goodbye, and the train pulled out and left the carriage behind. (laughs) 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 Two days later, George flew back to Zurich. <laughs> Living in places like that, they're very culturally different, it helps you to expect the unexpected. <laughs> so I don't have any more questions. There's not questions or comments, I'm just remembering as we were talking, the, um, the other death bed story, we were telling, I mean, suggesting that the um, that the, in addition to the vineyard, the, the monastic rules, that the minor, that the minor, minor rules could now be relaxed, mm. and, and, and only nobody could could work out after the ages expired. So, but nobody could work out what the minor and major rules were, mm. so they basically kept them all. Mm. But it, it stands as a kind of um, paradox question, really: what mm. are the major rules? What are the minor rules? Yeah. What's essential? Yeah, and also one of the four clingings is clinging to rights and rules. <laughs> that the Buddha makes as a positive clinging and, and in a sense, another hindrance to us. Um, there's some lovely stories about I mean, we tend to think of rules and all those sort of things. I mean, the Buddha was very quite lax often about them himself. I mean, he tells monks off in the vineyard for not breaking the rules. <laughs> You know, particularly where instances demand it, where somebody is sick and needs cleaning up and things like that. And he would actually tell them off. You know, so again, we have to look very closely at the way that we hold things like rules and even things like you know, meditation, saying, well, I can't possibly see you tonight, I've got to go and do my meditation. You know, things like that, which become so kind of stuck. Whereas actually mindfulness... The thing, the very thing that the Buddha is talking about, to bring awareness and mindfulness into our ordinary life, means to bring it into any situation. When we sit there in this formal hothouse here, we're developing, we're cultivating, we're practicing, we're kind of getting the shoots to come up. Um, but we're not there yet. And that's where your question comes back again. How are you taking it outside? Because you know, that might be being more flexible than we ever are here yeah, in this situation, which is a training situation. Yeah. And that's the reason for the rules in a, in a retreat centre like this, of keeping silent and doing the things we do and having a very kind of tight schedule here. It's training. It's actually training ourselves. Yeah. And discipline is important. I mean, let's, let's never underestimate that. I used to have an Indian music teacher who um, said to me, the only freedom is within discipline. And I think that's a very, very good thing for looking at within our lives, because if we have a degree of discipline which is a bit like the kind of circle we create for ourselves, and you can make it as wide or as small as you want, the wider the better, obviously. Uh, but if you have that as a discipline of what you do, then everything else is a play area. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the discipline is important.
And this is a way of encouraging us to get into the discipline of doing something like mindfulness practice or metta practices, as in the case that we're doing here. But as you can see, you know, developing metta in this situation can seem quite artificial because what you've got to do is actually feel it in your ordinary life. And you're going to feel it for others in your ordinary life. You know, how, when you're confronted by that irate person in your work situation, <laughs> who's looking really irritated, red in the face, and everything else, do you extend kindness to them? That is the cultural challenge. <laughs> yeah. I can see also when you come back in the real world, I see also a difficulty with, um, you know, turning to, from a hothouse flower to a perennial, mm. which is, with, as you say, working with bosses and people like that, to, because we might change, we might find that we do things differently or we might react differently when they are angry or something. And that might make it quite difficult, mm. might, might create a rift. Mm. So I, I can see here a sort of difficult point, you know. Mm. Yeah, it is, it, well, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, obviously, it is, very pra- it, it is difficult practically, but one has to always bear in mind that there's the other dimension to this, which is the wisdom, the insight of how you apply what you learn. Because there are some situations, and this is something I'll talk about as we go through the week, there are some situations where it's automatically you know, observable, or you, know, you can see that you can apply and be this particular way and be kinder in the situation. Other situations, why not? And that's called ethics. That's the ethical. That's what we're really confronted with in reality. Is the ethical situation and the responsibility that we're in every every aspect of our lives, in a sense, is an ethical situation, particularly when we're engaging with others. You know, and we have responsibility in that situation. And I use that word again deliberately, responsibility, because it's how we respond. Yeah. It's our ability to respond correctly in that situation. And that's the insight. That takes the insight to be able to do that. However, if whatever one's response is, is motivated by kindness or compassion, you remember these do not have to be all of the same type. Compassion, for example, does not have to be all soft and gentle. It's not always like that. There is dynamic compassion that gets things done. There is dynamic compassion that will stop people hurting others, or stop yourself from being hurt deliberately by another. These are all dimensions of compassion too. And we tend to, unfortunately, I think sometimes when we hear a word like compassion, we hear it monolithically, as if there is only one type, and it's all kind of soft and gentle and everything else, and that would create problems. You'd just irritate people like the hell. <laughs> you went around being like that, I'm sure, all the time. However, if you move with the situations, and this is something that's used in, in later Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, it's called skillful means, or skill in means. The means that you use when you move from situation to situation, because every situation is different, and will require something different from you. But there are difficulties, yes. Okay, well, I'm going to draw to a close now, give us a short break, and then come back and do half an hour's practice to finish this evening. Okay, thank you for Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.